Good morning, church. You know how long it's been since I told you that I loved you and appreciated you? 168 hours. Been one week, and I want to say again, as I always do, that I love you and I appreciate you. This time of our life, the last six months, have been incredibly trying and unique and different, and you know, I hate saying unprecedented because everybody says unprecedented, but it's been difficult and it still is difficult, and we're all obviously trying to figure out how to do it and how to navigate it, but I love you and I appreciate you all so very much. Those that are watching online, those that are gathered here in the auditorium, our elders, our deacons, our volunteers, people like the the AV group that are doing everything they can to accommodate us being in here and people being online and gathering outside and just trying to figure out how do we do this. But the way we do this Masks aside and and virtual things aside, all of that aside, how we do this is we keep on loving the Lord and loving each other. And that's what I love so much about each and every one of you. Thank you for your love, for your tenacious unity, for your faith in the Lord, and for the fact that we are going to stick with each other through whatever comes. And, And that gives us such great encouragement. We talked last week about how starting our week with worship and not just starting our 168 hours, but finding ways and finding time throughout that 168 hours to find time to worship, how it changes our perspective on everything, how worship changes how we relate to God, worship changes how we relate to creation, worship changes how we relate to each other, worship even changes how we relate to ourselves. So we have to find time during our 168 hours, which goes really fast, doesn't it? It feels like just yesterday we were having this conversation. That 168 hours goes so quickly, and we have to decide, I will devote time during my 168 hours to worshiping God, to reflecting on how much I love him and adore him and how that changes everything. But this morning, I want to talk about something else that we do with our 168 hours, probably your favorite thing to do with your 168 hours, and that's work, right? Work. And when I say work, I don't just mean the things that you do that you get paid for. I mean, everything that you do, work is everything or anything that requires effort. Work is anything that requires effort. It means taking care of your kids, maybe, or your grandkids, maybe. It means cleaning your house. It means paying your bills. It means taking out the trash. Maybe it means going to the office or being on a Zoom call. Maybe it means building something new or tearing down something old. Maybe it means hiring someone. Maybe it means letting someone go. Maybe it means buying something. Maybe it means selling something. Maybe it means writing letters. Maybe it means sending emails. Maybe it means organizing numbers on a spreadsheet. Whatever it is that you do, whatever your work is, whatever requires effort and labor on your part, you spend a lot of your 168 hours working, don't you? You probably feel like you spend too many of your 168 hours working. But what I want us to do this morning, what I want to challenge us to do this morning, is think about what is our perspective on those hours? What is the Christian perspective on work? 
What should be our perspective? Is it, is it a necessary evil? Maybe that's how we think about work. It's just a necessary evil. It's just something I have to do for this time that I'm alive and I'm just going to work and do it because I have to. Is it a waste of time? Oftentimes I hear sentiments like, you know, nobody at the end of their life ever says that they wish they had spent more time at the office, and that's probably true. But is it a waste of time? Is our, is our work hours, are those just a waste of time? Is work a result of the fall? I think sometimes we, we tend to think, ah, oh, Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that fruit, we'd all be back there in the garden just relaxing because we tend to think of paradise as a place without work. So is work a product of the fall? I want us to really challenge ourselves to maybe change our perspective a little bit when it comes to the hours we spend working because we spend so many of our 168 hours working, don't we? Whether that's being a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor or, or working as an employee or as an employer, we spend so many of our 168 hours working and we need to have the right perspective on that. So what should be the Christian's perspective on work? And the way we, we figure that out is we go back to the beginning because the, the very first couple of chapters of Genesis, the very first couple of chapters of the Bible is God's work week, right? God's work week. And our work week is modeled after God's work week because we are modeled after God. And so if we want to figure out what's, what's this week all about, what should this week be all about, in addition to worship, what else should we be doing? We look at God's work week. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, pay attention to this phrase, without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That phrase in Hebrew, without form and void, is tohu vavohu. That's one of my favorite things to say in Hebrew. Tohu vavohu. Without form and void, it was desolate and waste. It was a wasteland. The earth was barren. It was unfruitful, in, inhabitable. It was, there was no one, there was nothing inhabiting it. And then God worked. God spent the week working, bringing things into existence, yes. But also, I like to think about the word organizing things. That's what God is doing throughout his week, isn't it? He's organizing things. So whenever you think about organizing stuff, you're doing something like God did in the very beginning. Because one of the words that is used several times in that first chapter of Genesis is separated. Heaven and earth, water and land, plants and animals. God is organizing and creating. He is taking what was formless and void, and he's giving it form and filling it with things, with beauty, with flourishing. He's organizing and creating. He's separating. He's making things work in perfect harmony. And then the pinnacle of his creation week is you. It's you, human beings. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, let us make human in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. A couple of important things there. One, he says that humans are created in his what? image in his image 
Now, there were a couple different ways that the ancient people used that idea of image. We talked about one last week, and that is statues, right? Like a statue was an image of the god. It was supposed to reflect, at least in the pagan mind, the idolatrous mind, this statue reflected who this god was, what he was all about. It reflected something of his personality or his character into the world. And God said, I don't want a graven image to reflect my personality, my character in the world. I want living beings to be my image bearers. And that's what he made human beings to be. And another way they would, the ancient people would use image would be to talk about royalty. That the king, like maybe Pharaoh, was the image of their God. Well, God didn't just pick one kind of human being, like royalty, to be his image bearers. He made all of you. He made all y'all to be royalty, to be his royal image bearers. And notice words like dominion. This is all through this text, dominion. He wants his people to have dominion, all people to have dominion, not over each other, but over the creation. That's that's work language, isn't it? It's royal work language that human beings are to have dominion, to, to carry on God's work, to partner with God over all the nature of the world. And so God chooses to share his dominion, his supremacy, his kingship, his royalty with y'all, with all y'all. With all human beings, he chooses to share his dominion and to make humans his image bearers to go and to exercise or have dominion over creation. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see these, these words that he's using when he creates human beings? Fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, subdue the earth. The earth, besides the garden, apparently is still tohu vavohu. It's still formless and void. And there's so much place that God sends his human beings to go in the world and, and tame it, subdue it, civilize it, bring it under your control. That's work language, isn't it? This is before the fall. This is before Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God wants human beings to share his dominion, to go into the world, to subdue the world, to have dominion over the fish and the animals and the plants, and to do his work. And in the way they do their work, they reflect the work of the one who created them. God is organizing. God is subduing. God is exercising dominion. And then he creates human beings and says, I want you to go and subdue and have dominion to tame and civilize creation. And then Genesis chapter 2 kind of gives us an, another angle of the creation account. Genesis 2 and verse 5 Genesis 2 and verse 5 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." 
So he says there, there's two reasons that there wasn't any, any small plant of the field or there wasn't any bush. And it's because one, it hadn't rained. And two, there was no what? Man to work the ground. There was no human to work the ground. So this is why it was still formless and void. This is why it was still barren. Because one reason was God hadn't created man yet. God created humans to work to carry on his work, to bring order, to bring flourishing to the world. And the the text says that there there wasn't order and there wasn't flourishing for one reason, because God hadn't created humans yet to do that work. And then he created humans to bring order and flourishing through their work. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it. And keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So he says, even even in the garden, Adam, Eve were supposed to work it and keep it. Because you know what happens to a garden when humans don't work it and keep it, right? It, it becomes tohu vavohu, right? It, it gets overgrown and things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. There's no order to it. There's no, there's no sense to it. It just kind of gets overgrown. And so it was always God's intention that human beings would work in the world to do the same sorts of things that he did, to subdue, to civilize, to bring order, to bring flourishing to the world. That was our job. And there was only one rule. As you work and as you do what you're created to do, don't eat this fruit. And of course, when you have one rule, there's going to be somebody that breaks that rule. And even though there were only two people, they both broke that rule, didn't they? And so we see this cycle that begins Verse chapter 3, verse 17, after they eat the fruit to Adam, God says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what what changed after the fall? It wasn't that now all of a sudden Adam had to work for his food. He always had to work. He was created to work. Human beings were created to work. So it isn't that the fall caused work. The fall didn't cause work. The fall frustrated work. It made work frustrating, it made, it made work laborsome. It, it made work exhausting, sweat of your brow. Now the ground itself would fight against human beings. Now it would be hard to subdue it. Just the way humans rebelled against God's dominion and authority, now the earth itself and animal kind would rebel against the authority and the sovereignty of human beings. They would still have to work to bring flourishing. That was still their job. That was still their objective, to subdue the earth, to bring order, to bring civilization, to organize things, to work, to bring beauty into the world. But now it was going to be a frustrating task. And then the very next story, what happens? There's working, right? There's gardening, there's shepherding. And then somehow that work, it leads to jealousy, And it leads to anger, 
and it leads to murder. Instead of working towards order and flourishing, human beings work towards violence and oppression. And they became more and more and more violent and oppressive. And of course, that brings tohu vavohu. It brings chaos. The waters flooded the earth. And then humans get off of the ark, right? After Noah and his family get off of the ark. And what does God tell them again to do? Go out and have dominion. Fill the earth. Go out and do what humans were created to do. Bring order. Bring flourishing. But there was still this cycle of sin, oppression, pain, destruction. And human beings' work was continued to be frustrated. So here's the question. What hope is there for our work? It would be kind of depressing to just stop here, wouldn't it? Humans were designed to work, to bring beauty and flourishing and order and civilization and harmony to the world, but we didn't and we blew it and we were broken and because of our sin, work is now frustrating and hard and that frustration has led to cynicism. You've probably seen t-shirts, you know, life is hard and then you die, right? And, And that's kind of how we get, isn't it? Cynical and discouraged And we just kind of think, it's just all frustrating. And why do I do it? And every day I get up and and, and I have a mess to clean up. And and then I clean it up. And then the next day there's another mess. And it's frustrating. And it never seems to last. And it never seems to work. And all the plans and dreams and hopes that I have for the work, it, it just falls short of what I wanted. And it's hard. And nothing works the way that I want it to. And sometimes I end up working for something that I think is good. And it turns out to be not as good as I thought it was. What? Hope is there for our work. And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Paul calls him the second Adam. Because of his obedience, he's gotten us in so many ways back on track, back to what we were supposed to be. And so now when we labor in him and with him and for him, our work is not in vain. Did you hear that? When you labor and work and trust in Jesus, your labor is not in vain. So that cynicism that says life is hard and then you die and that's all there is to it, that's wrong. That that cynicism that says that, that work is a waste of time is wrong. That cynicism that says work is just evil and it's a result of the fall, it's wrong. Because when you labor in Christ, and with Christ and for Christ, your labor is not in vain. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Paul spends this whole chapter talking about resurrection. And then he says, the therefore, the conclusion. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always, I love this word, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in what church? In vain. Your labor is not in vain. But I got to thinking about that verse. I think we, we really spiritualize everything, don't we? And we say, well, what does this mean? The work of the Lord. Like, what's the work of the Lord? Well, that's the work Paul did, right? As an apostle. Or that's the work elders do. Or that's the work deacons do. Or that's the work evangelists do. That's the work ministers do. But Paul's not talking to apostles He's not writing a letter for ministers. He's not writing a letter just for elders or deacons. He's writing a letter to everybody. Moms and dads, rich people and poor people, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, 
And he's writing to all of them, saying, your work in the Lord is not in vain. He's talking to to students and farmers and merchants and fishermen, saying, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your work is not in vain. The work of the Lord can be done by anybody in any profession. I love what Martin Luther says. I found this quote this week, and I love this quote. Martin Luther said, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers, moms, moms, you appreciate this quote, I'm sure. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child, and someone ridicules him for being an effeminate fool, God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because that father is washing diapers, but because he's doing so in Christian faith. When we work in faith, when we work in hope, when we work in love, whatever work we're doing, when we work in faith, when we work in hope, when we work in love, our labor is not in vain. Isn't that good to know? That if you're organizing numbers on a spreadsheet, or you're typing out an email, or you're hiring someone, or you're letting someone go, if you're building something, or you're tearing something down, if you're changing diapers, if you're washing dishes, if you're painting a house, whatever it is that you're doing, if you do it in faith and in hope and in love, you're, you're doing what you were created to do, bringing order, bringing flourishing to the world right? I mean, just think about letters. I love, I love words, you know, I mean, that's what I do. I work in words, and so, I mean, I love letters. I mean, they're just letters. There's just a bunch of jumbled letters, and when you type out an email, or you write a card to someone, you're, you're taking that random tohu vavohu letter world, just chaotic, formless, void. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a jumble of letters and you're choosing letters and you're arranging them into words and words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs so that they make sense and they bless someone's life. Isn't that amazing? When you've got a card in the mail, someone organized letters into such a way that it touched you. And when we do that kind of work, yes, it's frustrating, Yes, it's hard. Whatever work it is that you do, it's frustrating and hard. When you clean up after your kids, it's frustrating and it's hard and the work never seems to end, but it matters. When you do it in the Lord, it matters. When you you wash a dish, when you put something away, when you change a diaper, you're doing the work God created you to do. You're bringing flourishing and order into the world. And it matters when it's done in faith and in hope and in love. Look at Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. And he's specifically here talking to slaves. He talks to fathers and to children, to husbands and wives. And he's talking to slaves and he says this, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. You say, it's just a waste of time, Paul. I'm just trying to get through it because life's hard and then you die, Paul. I'm just trying to get through it. I just, you know, one step in front of the other. I'm just running out the clock here, God. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not what's happening. You're not just running out the clock. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, listen, from the Lord 
you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul tells slaves in first century Rome, he says, your work matters. And when you work hard at whatever it is that you're doing, it matters. You will have a reward. Paul isn't justifying the institution of slavery. He's elevating all of the work done in faith to the status of the Lord's work, right? Everything you do in faith, everything you do in hope, everything you do in love, everything you do in the name of the Lord, if it's changing a diaper or building a house or tearing something down or organizing something or typing something or writing something, whatever you do in the name of the Lord, it matters. It's not in vain. So it's simple what I want to say this morning. In the Lord, your work matters. Whether you're a doctor or a nurse or you pick up garbage or you take care of your kids or you teach or you hire or you write or whatever it is that you do, your work matters in the Lord because of the Lord. You're doing what you were created to do. You're making the world a better place and you're doing it in faith, in the hope of the resurrection, in love for the Lord and in love for your neighbor. When your work is filled with faith and hope and love, your work really, truly matters. But part of our problem is that we're often not working in the Lord when we work. That's part of our problem, isn't it? Part of our problem is that we're working in greed. Part of our problem is that we're working in selfishness. Part of our problem is that we're working in pride. Some of the part of the problem is that we're working in despair. Part of the problem is that we're working just trying to run out the clock and we're not working in faith. We're not working in hope. We're not working in love. And so my encouragement to all of us this week, whatever your work is, no matter how grand and big other people may think it is or how menial you may think it is, no matter how big or small your work is, it matters. So work not in cynicism, not in greed, not in pride, not just trying to run out the clock, but work in faith and know that your work really matters. It matters what you do. Every card you write, every letter you write, every, every piece of clothing you pick up and wash every yard you mow, every person you encourage, do it in faith, do it in hope, do it in love, and know that those 40 hours or 60 hours or however many hours you spend working this week, if you do them in faith and hope and love, bathed in, in worship as we talked about last week, it really matters. One of our shepherds would love to meet you at the information desk if there's anything we can do for you this morning. In just a few minutes, we'll, we'll exit after a prayer, but we're going to sing a song right now. I ask that you all stand up, um, and if there's anybody that needs to visit with, with one of our shepherds, you can do that while we sing the song, or you could do that after we dismiss with a prayer. But we're going to sing this song, and then I will dismiss us with a prayer before we go.